0: Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up, and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization.
1: roll episode. Episode number one. Here we are. So welcome to the power struggle, where we will be discussing questions around power, who has it, and who doesn't, and how we can collectively organize to get it. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm joined with Jerry Lightfoot. And today we will be discussing the mass protests that have erupted in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. How are you doing today, Jerry? I'm doing good, Evan. How about yourself? Crazy days, man. Crazy, crazy days. Yeah, I hear you on that. So, to begin this discussion, we put together a series of interviews with individuals who have fought power from the street to the White House and beyond.
2: But in fact, I'm a man like you. I want to live like you. This country is mine too. I paid as much for it as you. White means that you are European still, and black means that I'm African. And we both know, we've both been here too long. You can't go back to Ireland or Poland or England, and I can't go back to Africa. And we will live here together, or we'll die here together. And it's not I am telling you, time is telling you. You will listen or you will perish.
3: A riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear It has failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. How many summers like this one
0: do you imagine that we can expect?
3: Well, I would say this, we don't have long. The mood of the Negro community now is one of urgency, one of saying that we aren't gonna wait. America's opportunity help bridge the gulf between the haves and the have-nots and the question is whether america will do it there's nothing new about poverty what is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty and the real question is whether we have the will. basic First Amendment privileges because they have committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read of the freedom of press, somewhere I read, the press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for right. Like slavery and apartheid, poverty is not natural. It is man-made and it can be overcome and eradicated by the actions of human
4: beings. If George Floyd was still alive, we should be as teary as we are now. and That's what concerns me. Because 700 people still die today from poverty. 700. Every day. People talk about how many people died per day and when the highest rate of coronavirus. But there is some hope that we'll get a vaccine and that'll move away. But for years now, 700 people have died every day from poverty. Quarter million a year and the great problem of america we haven't shed a damn tear and we keep acting like we keep having moments and i understand them where we treat try to treat injustice like it's a spectacle event <clears throat> and we do it one at a time and that's one of the reason it keeps happening because we don't make the intersections between systemic racism systemic poverty ecological devastation the war economy
2: if i know that in this hotel room they have food every day and i'm knocking on the door every day to eat and they tell and they open the door let me see the party let me see like them throwing salami all over the, i mean just like throwing food around where they're telling me there's no food in here you know what i'm saying every day I'm standing outside trying to sing my way in. You know what I'm saying? We are hungry, please let us in. We are hungry, please let us in. After about a week, that song is going to change the, we hungry, we need some food. After two, three weeks, it's like, you know, give me all the food and we're the door. And after a year, and then you just like, you know what I'm saying? A am picking the lock, coming through the door blasting. You know what I'm saying? It's like you hungry, you reached your level. You don't want any more. We asked 10 years ago. We was asking with the Panthers. We was asking with them, you know, with the civil rights movement. We was asking, you know, now. Now, those people that were asking they're all dead and in jail so now what do you think we're gonna do say this world i mean it i don't mean in an ideal sense i mean in the, uh, every day every little thing you do it's such a gimme 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 everybody back off you know everybody's like you taught that from school everywhere big business if you want to be successful you want to be like trump Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give push, 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 step, 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 crush, crush, crush. That's how it all is. And it's, you need to help black kids, Mexican kids, Korean kids, whatever. But it needs to be real and it needs to be before we all die. And then you say, oh, I made a mistake. We should have gave them some money. We really should have helped these folks. It's going to be too late.
1: So a lot to unpack there. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but we can
5: start basically with the James Baldwin um, soliloquy. And how he was basically saying, okay, you know, me as a black person, I can't go back to Africa. You as a white person, you can't go back to Europe. We're so far removed and this is our land. So either we're going to live here together or we're going to die here together. I mean, either one, basically the choice is yours, but it is what it's going to be. And only time will tell, or not only will time will tell, because it's a ticking time bomb. It was then, and it's kind of sad that as we listen to these quotes from 50 years ago, um, you know, besides Tupac and Mandela, but listening to James Baldwin, listening to MLK, these happened 50 years ago. This happened 50 years ago. And the same thing that they're talking about, the same, I mean, literally the same context that is spoken in is still relevant to this very day. Not just some of it, not just bits and pieces, not just this word right here. I mean, literally line for line. And I I definitely agree with James Baldwin. I don't think we're gonna be on the verge of a civil war, but I think people are fed up, like not just, and for once, it's not just black people, it's not just people of color, it's not just LGBTQ, Community, you know, backing us with support because they know how it feels to be persecuted. It's actually white people now um, coming down to these marches. It's white people being activists. It's white people organizing these protests and leading these protests because the murder of George Floyd showed America what we have been seeing and saying for 400 years, but. For some people, it, it just doesn't click until it hits home. It doesn't click until it's blatant in their face. And you don't get no more blatant than watching someone kneel, put the full weight of their body, kneel on one knee, like they're proposing or something, kneel on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. It's it's mind-boggling when you you think about that. But now seeing that, I see that's where it's sad that he had to lose his life. But I think it was needed to really shake the shit out of America, shake the shit out of the consciousness of a lot of people for them to realize, this is what's going on. And it's not an isolated incident. This is what's going on in communities of color all across the country on a daily basis. You know how many George Floyds happen a day, a week, a month, a year, that just don't get no press? So um, yeah, that's my take so far on on, on James Baldwin. I know we have a lot more to unpack with MLK, Tupac, uh, Mandela, and The Reverend, but yeah, go ahead. I'm about to run away with it.
1: Yeah, I, I love James Baldwin. And the more I listen to, I've, I've really been trying to listen to as many interviews as, as possible uh, to get a perspective of the social dynamics that are mm-hmm. coming to fruition as he's talked about. And, um, you know, the moving on to the MLK kind of clips, you know, riot is the language of the unheard. Um, we see this economic collapse going on. And this whole racial tension and racial injustice and murder and public lynching that's going on. There's this confluence of factors that I think is is really leading to a point where there's there's no way you can govern people who are unable to feed themselves. Uh, you, you can't have uh, civility. You can't have um we're we're beyond this point where people need to be nice and things like that i I, it's it's so bad on such a different on on so many levels and and with tupac even saying you know at a certain point you know you're going to just see the wealth in the land and and you just kind of have to take it and either it's going to be a peaceful taking or it's going to be a violent taking um because also kind of touching on nelson mandela i you know poverty is not natural we live in this land with some of the richest people in the world we have over 400 billionaires i believe and this poverty this inopportunity this this racism this um these these dynamics are man made this is not something that it, we can just say explain away oh this is just a natural order of things this is how it's designed and at a certain point, we got to wake up to the fact that you know, if there's 250,000 Americans dying every year from poverty, you got to I I link that directly to this you know very racist um, power structure on top of a, a lot of class issues as well. All right. So
5: going back to what you said about rioting with MLK, yes, riot is the language of the unheard, and you know bringing in. What Tupac said, too, we're, we're looking at a country, like you said, 400 billionaires. I, I don't even, can't even begin to count the number of millionaires that we have. We're not living in a poor country, but then we're being told every day, people are being told every day, this doesn't ex- exist, that doesn't exist, there's no room for this, there's no money for this, there's no funding for that, or they're steady cutting funding to the programs that they have to help people out. And then you're looking at it, so if... You know, everyone pays taxes to pretty much contribute to this country, the infrastructure, the social security, the medical, like the, the whole nine yards of labor America. <laughs> like labor is right, America. Then how do we have these corporations? Now you know, we, we're like thousandaires. We make you know regular money, but pretty much 18 to 25 percent of it we never see because that goes to taxes, right? But we have these corporations that make billions of dollars each year or at least in the high hundreds of millions and their money and their money it it, it just recycles back into them they're not paying their fair share they're not contributing to this country tax wise and that's the part that's kind of crazy so we're looking at all of this we're looking at things being cut saying we don't have the funding but then we're looking at these big corporations that have the money to contribute to help build up this country and they're just giving their high level CEOs and you know, boards of directors bonuses. We're looking at all the money that's leaving this country going out in foreign aid, going to this country, going to that country, uh, you know, going to the military for war. Like We've been fighting the same war going on almost 20 years. It'd be 19 years after September 11th. So it's hard to say we don't have money for this, we don't have money for that, and, and as a country, we're sitting there looking at everything the government has the tendency to spend money on. They're spending money on all these things that could somehow benefit them in some shape, form, or fashion. But let's be honest, like it, it's, it benefits me none if I'm rich and I'm trying to continue staying rich and I'm trying to be even more wealthy or be richer and I'm contributing to the poor. How does taking care of the poor help me? Taking care of the poor doesn't. It just takes money out of my pocket. So I think that's where we are, where we easily have the tools to fix poverty. Just like, and I know I'm just throwing this out, I'm not even gonna dwell on it for a minute because it's a whole different conversation in itself. But just like they told us, we can't afford to pay, uh, you know, black people reparations for slavery because it will come to the, about the tune of $14 trillion. We don't have actually extra $14 trillion laying around, so we can't do it. But then COVID-19 happened and they turned around and sh- shot everyone out these stimulus checks To the tune of about i think 22 trillion dollars so not only is 22 more than 14 it's you know it's a good eight more than 14 so not only did we have 14 trillion dollars as originally estimated for reparations we had an additional eight trillion more laying around that we tossed out to the whole country and this is why i'm saying it's it's not like it doesn't exist the resources are there they just do not want to do it
1: because it's nothing
5: in doing it for them.
1: Yeah, in in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I, I believe the total um, expenditures of the Federal Reserve was around twenty nine million, and I, I think for this right now with the Federal Reserve counting, it, it's around nine nine trillion. But it, it does show the the power of of finance, and I think when we we're, we're talking about where power resides, I, I think there's. You know, the there's several different uh, different orbits, you know, one revolves around finance and economy. And I I think finance really is the organizing principle of society. So I think you organize finance at the top and that that's where I see power residing. That's where the, the river of wealth flows through Wall Street and the Federal Reserve. Politics is obviously a way to get there. And I think culture is a way to kind of change the values to get there as well. Um, Those are some thoughts about about where I I see it residing. And then looking at legitimacy, the the question of what gives power legitimacy. And I came across this idea through a professor where he talked about eudaimonic legitimacy, which is this idea that the legitimacy of the government, of the leadership, of the executive branch of Congress, is based on how they deliver the goods to the people. So if the standard of living is actually increasing year to year, generation after generation, then there is a legitimacy on that. Now that, that alone won't provide legitimacy, but it, it is a good indicator. And when you see people struggling more and more every year, there is an illegitimacy in the current leadership, in the current organization, in the current management of this country. Um, and, and I, I think, we'll be tackling that, you know, going forward as well. But uh, do you want to talk a little b- or mention anything before we kind of show the next uh, several videos on a little bit where you see power residing and, uh, you know, like what gives power legitimacy? So I'm
5: kind of in the, the same boat with you. Like I see power two ways. I see power finance. I see power politics, but they go like together hand in hand. They fit like a glove. And if you think about it, out of all of the federal entities that we have, out of all the agencies and everything else, there's only one agency that shares space, shares a lawn, shares property with the White House. And that's the Treasury Department. Okay? So you have the President of the United States in this White House, and then right here on the other side of that back lawn, you have the treasury department. And it's not like that by coincidence. Money, politics, power, it all goes hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. It takes money to get to these, these certain high offices, You know, all these millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, contributions from, from corporations, from Wall Street. It takes money. And then it takes power. And but the sad thing is the people with the power, like I said before, they don't they don't recognize everything else. They only see what's in their bubble. They see life from their eyes. All right. So that's why I say a lot of our, our elected officials who've been in office, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, they're so far removed from what it takes or what a daily life, what daily life is their constituents that there is no way they can be honestly repping them when you're in that position of power going back to the riots it needed to happen the way it happened because power like that or, or the system of power how it's set up today only recognizes two things loss of money and loss of life you start messing with any of these two and now you have their attention. When the riots happened, people took it out their neighborhoods for the first time. They weren't rioting in their neighborhoods; they were hitting big corporations. I'm not saying it's right, but once again, they only recognize two things: loss of money, loss of life. Those riots, those targeted riots on those corporations opened up the corporations eyes was allowing them to get behind the movement align themselves on the right side of history and thus start pushing for a lot of the things that we needed to see happen a lot of the bills a lot of the the different measures that was being taken um you know city council state legislature even congress it was happening like this executive orders by by governors things that people have been fighting for and marching for for years just this time alone because of how the whole country not just the country how basically the world had our back and the world erupted over what happened to floyd we got the change that we had been fighting for for at least i know ever since rodney king and probably longer but when i was a kid and rodney king got beat in la these are the type of measures they was trying to do for you know reforming the police but now we we have them we have chokeholds are illegal we have you know, you know they should like uses uses of force, using the body cameras, everything else. So it, it's good to see. It's 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 sad that it had to get to this, but at the same time, I'm 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 happy it did. I, I, I'm I'm really am because I was I was talking to people and they're like, well, how do you feel about everything when they were setting places on fire and you're literally looking at these cities and everything's ablaze, and it was crazy because. I felt like the Joker in the dark night. You know, you when he got all that money out the truck and he says, Look, I, you know, I'll bring the dude. I'll get you this. All I want is half. And they were like, Okay. So he got this warehouse and money stacked tall to the ceiling. He comes sliding down, takes the gasoline, dump it all over his and let it on um, light it on fire. And he looked at him like, Yo, what are you crazy? And he's like, Nope, it's not about the money. Sometimes it's about sending a message and I really thought that, and that's how I felt. It's not about the money. It's not about these, these billion dollar corporations. They're not, they're not losing any sleep over, you know, a store getting burned down or brick and mortar being gone. They have insurance for that. They have insurance for everything that's in that building. They're going to be okay. But the message was sent. People were sick and damn tired. And finally for once, the right people listen.
1: And I think that's a good segue to talk a little bit about um, what wasn't mentioned by me about where power resides and, and ultimately it's the people and we going on the streets and we essentially give our power away. And if we can take it back and collectively organize, that's gonna be one way to, to really challenge the, the structures of power that we see. So, with that said, I'm going to just pull up some of these videos. Um, here we go.
0: Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up, and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does, it mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues, we are concerned with the system. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. The unconscious can usually be captured easily around one issue items around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events.
5: It is your duty to fortify your own house so that you may be a house of refuge in times of organization. And now is the time to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. What we're
2: talking about is there has to be uh, an education program, that's very important. As a matter of fact, we are so important
5: for us that a person has to go through six weeks of our political education before we can consider himself a member of the party, able to even run down ideology for the party. Why? Because if they don't have an education, then they know where, you dig know what I'm saying? They know where, because they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing.
1: So before moving on to the next uh, topic, I do wanna show this little chart right here about the mass strike phenomenon. And this concept of the mass strike was written about by Rosa Luxemburg at the turn of the century in Europe, where she was quoted as saying, the spontaneous struggle of the masses, elemental and self-organizing may be sufficient to paralyze the state, at least temporarily, but not to sweep away the influence of institutions, which had been built for decades within the working class. So with that there, I, I think it's really important to discuss the why organization and, and the idea of Fred Hampton saying we need education, organization, and, the, and mobilization all together. Um, the, the question with this current situation is that things can die out very quickly. Right. People can go to the streets and we're already seeing that the, the amount of protests are decreasing Uh, it's almost like a a pressure valve has been released for temporarily for a moment of time. Um, Do you want to, do you want to mention anything or like what's your perspective on, on kind of those angles on the strategy on, on approaching power?
5: No, I mean, I I agree a hundred percent and just kind of to go back to what you said right before you played these clips, power, the true power, like, like, you said, does reside in the people. And the reason why I know you didn't mention it, well, I can't speak on why you didn't mention it, I know why I didn't mention it initially is because we know where the power lies, the true power lies. However, we are living in this world of this is where power is. So, and it kind of goes, I was having a conversation with someone and and was talking about the demonstrations and they felt that demonstrations were, dismantling our government, dismantling our country every time, you know, bit by bit. And I'm saying, no, they're not. Like, you have to understand, we have the power as the people. The government is supposed to work for us, all right? And I even had to quote the Declaration of Independence. And it's funny, I had it up all this time on my computer and just uh, earlier today, I X out of everything. But the quote where it was pretty much going through all the different rights that, have been bestowed upon us. And that if a government is not taking care of us and allowing us to live up to those rights and achieve those rights, then it's up to the people to abolish it, (laughs) tear it down and set up a new one in its place. And you know, you hear people talk of that and they're like, oh, don't say that, that's treason, that's this, that's that. No, it's right there in the Declaration of Independence. If the government is no longer doing what it's supposed to do for us, then it's up to us to change it. So that's why I'm 100%. I agree with uh, what uh, Kwame Tere said. I agree with what Killer Mike said. I agree with Fre- Fred Hampton said. We have to have something besides mobilization because things die. Things die quickly, especially when people, when the pressure is release, like you said, and like, okay, we got this measure passed. We got this executive order signed. So we, you know, we won, but no, we haven't won because once again, like uh, brother Kwame said, Mobilization around issues, things like that's just it's the single solitary issues. We're trying to organize around the entire system, and that's the difference. So once you have mobilization, I look at it like a war, okay? You have, you send your troops out. That's a mobilization. We send our ground troops out, right? So, but you don't have everybody on the battlefield. You know, you have generals, you have other high-ranking officials. They're behind. They're at the headquarters, at the HQ, and they're plotting, they're planning, They're strategizing. They're trying to figure out what's that next thing that we're gonna do. How are we gonna ensure victory? Because victory, this is a battle. We're trying to win the war. So yes, we may win the battle, but our mindset is on the war. So we shouldn't only be caught up on issues. That's mobilizing, that's issues. We need to have our mindset on the system. And that's where organization comes in. We have to organize. We have to mobilize because it's very important. But at the same time, once things start to die out, we have to organize, plan, and strategize how are we going to continue to affect change? What does change look like? What will we be happy with? What do we want to see as a people? All right, We can't just say, you know, justice for George Floyd. All right, now they lock the people up and it's like, all right, well, we can go home. Hey, man, let's get some milkshakes and a burger. It doesn't work like that. We need to say, all right, that happened. What's next? How can we knock down uh, criminal, criminal justice reform? How can we knock down... Uh, police brutality you know having checks and balances for law enforcement we need to have a plan so as we achieve one we knock that off we scratch that off our list and now we're on to the next thing and that's where organization comes in uh, big time so I agree with Killer Mike I agree with Fred Hampton people need to be educated on why they're doing what they're doing you can't just see people walking by outside your window and say hey man that looks cool I want to go join it you can but like you said, once it dies down and there's no one coming outside marching by your window no more, what is gonna, where's that fire that's gonna keep motivating you to do the things you were doing before? And that's where the education comes in. That's where the knowledge comes in. So knowing exactly what the system is, how it was set up, how it's, it's not beneficial for people of color or you know, people in poverty then once you see those things, once you understand the history and where all of that is coming from and where we are today, you're better equipped to fight against it and you're more willing
1: to stand against it. And as a declaration of independence, as you brought up, there is a whole line of abuses. There's a whole uh, number number of uh, laid out abuses, everything from uh, he has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us uh, for, the, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury for, for and, and it really goes through it to the end where it's in every stage of these oppressions we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury and so it goes, goes on from there and that brings up this I I think one of the most important uh, thinkers, writers, uh, he was around uh, during the Civil War, saw a lot of things and the things that Frederick Douglass was talking about with, you know, if there's no struggle, there is no progress. And one of the things he really focused on was looking at demands, having very clear demands that can be Organized around and then you can pressure the systems of power through those organized demands So to quickly or to read this quote power concedes nothing without a demand it never did and never will Find out just what any people will quietly submit to and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong Which will be imposed upon them and these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both the limits of tyrants are pres- prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress." So I guess, what, what are the demands? What, what are the demands of, of this current movement? What, what do you see as some of the, the leading demands going on? Huh.
5: So um, I think the leading demands going forward, with especially with police brutality i think that's 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 key that's big all right because we look at it you know in communities of color you're looking at law enforcement like hey you're supposed to be here to protect and serve however every time we see you it's it's not that we're getting harassed we're getting you know manhandled we're getting excessive use of force and it's like for what because you realize that these people These cops, these these law enforcement officials, whose position is to uphold the law, figure that they are above the law. And now that they are above the law, they are now your judge, jury, and executioner. And, And that's not the way it was set up. All right. So there really needs to be some strict, stronger checks and balances on law enforcement. Okay. Now, we hear this, not all law enforcement's bad, yada, yada, yada. I understand that. But at the same time, where are those not bad law enforcement officers when things like this take place? It's a lot of times because they turn a blind eye to it. All right. So, yeah, we could be partners. And I know that, you know, you have a problem with people of color and you pretty much beat them up, harass them, do whatever. And I don't say anything to you. I just let it happen. I'm just as wrong. I'm not the one doing it but I'm just as wrong. And even the ones that actually take the moment to to stand in and step in against it, they get shunned, they get get outcast. Like the female officer that stopped her partner from, I think it was choking out someone on the street, she was fired with only, I think, a few months left before she was about to fully retire. So she lost her pension and everything. This is right in Buffalo, New York recently. So, or you have uh, instances where, you report, you, you you go through the proper channels and you report these people who are going, working outside of that badge, working outside of the law. And you say, hey, this person's doing this, this person's doing that. It goes up the chain. Of course, that kind of stuff is not secret, you know, in the department. So now it's a target on your back. So when, you, when you're out, you know, riding around doing patrols and you go to a call, you say, hey, I need backup, I need this. This is a, uh, you know, this is, Falcon 247 and everybody's is like oh, that's a negative. I, I can't do it. I'm doing this I'm doing it like they will literally not have your back and that could be life or death. So uh, It's like the gift and the curse you want people to step up and do the right thing They should step up and do the right thing. But when they do they are retaliated against they're not supported They're shunned and that basically being forced, you know out off the force, you know, so you have very good people That are leaving because they just can't do what's right, and then still move forward or still progress uh, within within the organization. So definitely, we have to look at uh, the police as a whole, or policing as a whole, and if it means possibly flipping the way people patrol, flipping the the parameters or or the qualifications to patrol certain neighborhoods. So say, let's say, oh, if you wanna work this area, you have to live in this area, or you have to live within so many miles of this area. So you're familiar with the area, if you're more familiar with it, if it's something that, that you see and you're accustomed to on a daily basis, you're gonna approach it differently versus someone who's, who lives out, you know, if you're in New York or whatever, and you are working any of the boroughs like Bronx or Brooklyn, and this person's coming all the way from Long Island. I'm not sure if you you know familiar with the geographics of New yeah. York, but Long Island's like an hour ride outside the city. So you're coming from the island way out in you know you know Suffolk County or whatever, and you're coming all the way in to the city. You know you're in the suburbs, coming into the city. Your mentality is totally different than people who who live there, who live in that area. Who are, who are used to the people who know the people who have a rapport with the people? You know, you're coming in on some billy really badass shit, and that's not even where it needs to go. But a lot of times, that's just people's mentality, and you know, people whether they want to say it or not, even people that claim they're not racist, they're guilty of having bias. All right, like everyone has biases but it's how, what you do with them. Like, do you act on them? Now, when you start, when you have a bias and you, you act on it, so as a cop, so now you're profiling, but then now that profiling go- takes another step and it goes even higher to where now you're harassing. The harassing turns to another escalation of force and before you know it, now we have another hashtag. So there's there's other things too, but I'm gonna let you hop in um, yeah, right here. I- the main thing is, for right now, is policing as a whole. And, and, and everything that falls with it, and definitely demilitarizing the police. It's no way that our local police, our local cops, should have weapons and vehicles and access to the same things that are being used by our men and women in uniform overseas in wartime. Is no, re- no way possible these tanks, these Hummers, these, these, these weapons, these rocket launchers, these bombs, whatever, They do not belong in residential neighborhoods, period.
1: Yeah, and I I totally agree. And that's obviously connected to a lot of our foreign policy over the last 20, 30 years, which I'm sure we'll get into in, in future programs. And some of the things I see as well is obviously, you know, no military hardware. You need to have a database of officers who've committed crimes so they can't just move from police station to the next police station you need a functioning department of justice that can actually go in to these areas where there's no oversight by the local authorities or state that can go in and really break up some of these very insulated, um, rackets almost racketeering. And then at the same time, looking at licensing the police, you know, there's this going around where beauticians have to do something like several hundred hours to get their license and, and police Licensing is, is really dependent on locale. So trying to create a professional police force and then things like the union that allows for qualified immunity, where if a cop commits a crime on duty that the other police officer who witnessed that crime can say they don't have to testify in court uh, with this qualified immunity, that, that has to be removed. Right. Uh, I, I really want to kind of keep things in concrete terms because there are, in, in an ideal world, we want to eliminate racism and things like that. But I agree with you. You go to any country in the world, there is racism. And racism, unfortunately, is a part of human psychology. It's, it's just like we're not going to eliminate evil from the world either. But we do need these certain policies in place. And uh, this obviously isn't going to happen within the, this current paradigm of political power. But I even want to go beyond just the issue of policing and and this issue of of trying to unify a lot of these movements on the streets with mass demands, with the idea of universalizing human rights, economic rights. And so FDR, he he came off with this uh, economic bill of rights, with this idea that everyone deserves welfare when they're on their back, or if they're down and out. Everyone deserves housing. Everyone deserves healthcare. Everyone deserves social security at the end of their life. Uh, Education, let's bring everyone deserves universal education all the way through college. Um, These are things that we need to figure out so that the youth coming up are not, are are given the same opportunities and support that middle class and wealthier folks. and, And also the racism that's prevented certain you know, ethnicities and races from, from getting a slice of the pie. It needs to be universalized. And then that I believe will help with uh, the mass traction demands that, that, can really unify some of these, these movements together. I agree with you. And going back to what you're saying about the police,
5: this, yes, we, we do need a national database to see, you know, a, a lot of times cops get fired and they go to a different county, go to a different state, They're able to be law enforcement, you know, there. it needs to be a national database so it can talk like, oh, you were a cop where? Oh, well, it says you got fired, man. So that's a no-go. But then in turn, that would work with what you said about licensing if they had to have a license Or, or just like I don't understand how cops with so many complaints of excessive force or so many open complaints against them, like if you have 18, 19 complaints, then why are you still on the street? Obviously, you're doing something wrong. So it needs to be a system like that to where not only it can talk, but then if you have over so many complaints, then you need to be set on at least administrative duty until they get to the bottom of it. You're not still out on the streets uh, with the you know, with with the power to possibly take someone's life. Also going back to that, I think mandatory minimums like are we gonna be able to stop all police, you know, brutality and, and police killings? We're not. We're not, but we can lessen it. We can make them think twice about it. And I think you achieve this by basically coming with mandatory minimums. So to me, I think 25 to life, that should be the mandatory minimum. If you are found to have discharged that firearm, you know, acting inappropriately or without just cause, then your mandatory sentence is 25 to life, like just starting out, starting out the gate. So then you would have a lot of people thinking twice, pulling that firearm in, in, in situations to where it's really not required, where your life isn't really in threat. And then the, 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 mo- the main thing I, I hate to hear is, I feared for my life. Like We need to get away from that defense because you're a cop, it's a dangerous job, all right? You know, I was in the military when I was at war, I couldn't just shoot up everybody and say I feared for my life. They were rules of engagement. So you are a trained, you know, you're trained in that particular craft, then yes, it's a dangerous job. Danger comes with it. You may lose your life, but you can't approach every situation like, I could just shoot my way out of it and say, I fear for my life. Like, no, there's levels to this. It's an escalation of force for a reason. And I think cops are, are given that, that pass just by saying, well, you know, I fear for my life. I, I wanted to make it home to my family. Shit, I believe that person probably wanted to make it home to their family. You know, they had a son, a, a daughter, a wife, you know, a husband, a mother, whatever. They had all of these things. And now those people are now missing that person because you decided to take their life away. And what was your other point that you brought up? Oh, with the economics, right? Economics. I think economics, we definitely do need, we, we, we need systems in place to help bring, and it's not equality. quality, because a lot of times people hear, well, we want equality, we want equality, and we just want equity. You know, we want programs that's going to produce, that's going to allow us to to grow wealth. Because equality is, I'm pretty much giving everyone the same, the same, you know, the same resources. But for some people, we know they're already set up, or, or, or particular some particular races, they're already set up light years ahead. So even by giving them the same resources, not everyone has the same resources. There's still going to be that gap. And I could paint that picture like this. If we're all standing at a fence, right? I'm six, five. So naturally I could probably already see over the fence, but then there's someone who's three feet tall. There's someone who's five feet tall and they say, Oh, we want to make sure that all you guys are able to see. So here's a three foot box for all y'all to stand on. So the, the, Three-foot person gets on three-foot box, so now they're six feet tall. They can see right over the fence. The five-foot person gets on the three-foot box, so now they're eight feet tall. They can see great – you know, they can see decently over the fence. And now me, at six five, I get on a three-foot box. I'm now standing nine feet, five inches off the ground. I can see well everything. That's a quality, but it's still not equitable. And I think of people – you know, that gets lost in translation. People just want – or oh, we want to call it equality, equality, we really don't because for the people that it has still been in for so long, it's still that gap. We, we want to close that gap. We want to make things, a, you know, a more, a playground for everyone, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And something I'd like to bring up in, in kind of bringing the, the framework is that we talked earlier about these billionaires, and for me, when you have homelessness, when you have schools crumbling, when you have people who can't get healthcare, I think it's immoral that billionaires exist. I think there is a major redistribution of wealth to the top. I mean, during this whole COVID crisis, I believe uh, billionaires made $500 billion or something like that, and a third of Americans right now are a month behind on their mortgage payment. So, th- this is going to have to be a, a policy that taxes the rich and redistrib- redistributes a lot of their wealth to, to universalize it. But I, w- I want to go beyond that too. I, I think ultimately you need to grow the economy more. There, there's not enough wealth in the world right now to make sure that everyone in the world is getting education because we got to look within and take care of what's going on in this country. But at the same time, I do believe that a revolution here in the United States can have repercussions with oligarchy throughout the world. And, and ultimately we need to more production, we need more jobs, we need infrastructure or public works. Uh, we need more schools, more hospitals, uh, more opportunities for, for everyone coming into the workforce and those who are being laid off and things like that. So I, I wanna not only get a redistribution of wealth tax, uh, going on, but, but also looking at government job creation investment in the people who need jobs and, um, and who can help rebuild this crumbling country right now. So we're, we're almost at the end here and, uh, looking ahead, what, what do you have kind of over the next short, medium term? Uh, whether it's uh, optimistic or, or not, um, just on uh, closing out, what are some of the things that you're tracking in this this dynamics of power? I guess the things that I'm tracking in this dynamic of power, it's just,
5: it, it feels good to see that shift. Just like everything, the mobilization act of it, like I told you before, it felt real good seeing people finally fed up and then people getting out and doing, you know, making the moves to do what needed to be done. And, and it was nice to see that we had the whole world behind us. I mean, America is supposed to be that, that beacon of light, you know, that the light on the top of the hill that guide for all the other countries to emulate and want to be like, but I think it's funny how we go to all these other countries and, and pretty much dictate to them how they need to to live, how they should run their government, how they should run their country, when our house is pretty messed up back home. You know? So I'm I'm very optimistic that things will change. I believe they can change, but it, it just we have to keep applying pressure. We can't just get we can't get lax. We can't get complacent or just think like, oh, well, you know, we, we got a victory. We got some things done and just start to mellow out. We have to keep applying pressure. We have to keep applying pressure because eventually, once again, the mobilization, it dies. But it's that organization, it's that education that's really going to take us to the next level. And um, just I just wanted to read real quick. I, I was actually able to bring it up. The part that I was talking about, the Declaration of Independence. So it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That is to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such a form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." It's up to us, the power, it always belonged to us. Sometimes we need to, to take these things and hold it up in front of these people's faces and show them like, look, this is what this country was founded on. These are the things that you're telling us we can't do. But right here, it says we're to hold you accountable. Right here is saying that if you don't do it and you get away from these ends, it's up to us as the power, as the people, to alter or abolish it and institute something new that's going to lay the proper foundation in these principles. It's up to us. The power has always been up to us. We have to get enough people to wake up here and to really see that they have and that they are everything that they need to be in this world. And hopefully through this podcast, hopefully through these conversations, you know, sometimes, you know, either being tense or not tense in this, this uncomfortable subject matter, people will start to, to open up. People will start to wake up or we'll start reaching people will, will have a little itch in their mind and maybe they want to go read. They want to pick up books. They want to learn history instead of his story. And I'm optimistic that we can have it. We can build it. If we build it, they will
1: come. And then, Hey man, we, we, we're organized and we're on the way. Yeah. And I I love the optimistic note because we are living in extremely dark times. Uh, It's, it is, scary the amount of disruption that's going on and when you think about the United States has had three major revolutions that have had world implications. The first one as you talk about is the breaking from England. The next one is the civil war where the confederate slaveholders were beaten and defeated Mm -hmm. and I think the third one was through the new deal and through the fighting of the fascists in Europe. And I I believe right now we're in that once in a lifetime opportunity for this fourth revolution. We have the opportunity before us. And as Frederick Douglass said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. So we uh, need to work together and uh, keep struggling and have pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. I like that.
5: I like that. Just real quick before we get out of here. Your take, Confederate monuments. What do you think, them coming down all over the place, people trying to fight, presidents trying to fight to keep them up. What do you? How do you feel?
1: I went down to Richmond um, on MLK day when there was this huge gun rally. And a lot of it, it it's very interesting because it, a lot of what's playing out today, I, I saw with, with what was going on in Richmond, uh, even the history of this gun rally, uh, has racist implications of why it first started coming to Richmond when MLK Day was on that Friday. or And so then they started showing up during this uh, legislation day in, in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And then I drove along uh, Monument Avenue, which was my first time seeing that. And in the essay, I, I really lay it out where, how could you allow these insurrectionist traders to be able to bring in statues of of, of celebrating this whole economic system that is based on slavery because a lot of, a lot of um, apologists of these traders will say, well, this was cultural and things like that. No, the, there's actual documents of the declaration of war from the Confederates. It is about slavery. And within this essay, I, I really focus on the fact that there is a, this neo-Confederacy that's rising and reconstruction of the south have actually never happened because lincoln was assassinated right and we're, we're still dealing with those demons the entire confederacy uh re uh i guess like re-education of, of like what it is uh really started after that first generation of soldiers died out because obviously the union soldiers wouldn't allow these confederate monuments to come up So it started really coming up with uh, the push for the Ku Klux Klan that was a terror organization, a fascist terror organization that was going after the free blacks uh, from political participation and economic uh, self-sufficiency and even, you know, being able to defend themselves with weapons and and militias going into the civil rights era. And so I I see today as this fourth revolutionary, revolutionary opportunity where what wasn't finished in the Civil War and, and in the Second World War II was a decisive defeat of these fascist forces. And I, I really do look at it based on this economic model and this economic system. So absolutely, all these military bases that are named after these losers definitely need to rename Confederate statues all all taken down.
5: Uh, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I, I just think it's crazy that you want to celebrate being a loser. I mean, because if we go, we go to Germany, we're not seeing statues of Hitler. We're not seeing statues of prominent uh, Nazi generals and, and, and commandants or what commanders or whatever else they were. We're not seeing those statues. Only here in America... Are oh, we seeing them? And it's not even like it happened, like you said, during their lifetime, because they were still licking their wounds. This is happening early 1900s. You know, pretty much after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, after after Reconstruction, and in the era of Jim Crow. So these statues weren't really built to admire and honor these individuals, it was it was it was put there almost as a reminder. Like, yeah, you may be walking around free, but you see this man right here? It, it it was just almost strike fear and terror in the hearts of these free people. You know, so it was just another way for them to uh systemically be in their mind like you'll never be one of us. You'll never have a truly free life. So I'm all for them, taking taking them down. I mean all the Confederate ones, cool, and they're lucky that the the ones from our founding fathers that were slave owners are still up. I mean, those, I pretty much, I guess, if you want to chalk it up to they founded this country and that was just the culture back then. Eh, still not really. But definitely, they weren't ones, you know, succeeding from what they had built and tried to you know, literally have their own country. And like you said, it was about slavery. That's all it was about. It was never about anything else. As soon as they said, hey, you know, we need to we pretty much need to cut this, you're looking at it like these are these are the reasons why, you know, these are the reasons why we have to leave. Like, yo, this is our this is our livelihood. This is our money. Like what if we have to get out there in these tobacco fills and cotton fills ourselves? We can't do it. So even if you look at uh kind of like the Great Compromise of when they came back into the Union after the Civil War was over, and the reason why in the Constitution, in the 13th Amendment, um, or, you know, we're labeled three-fifths a person, Black people labeled three-fifths a person, was because they wanted to bring the South back in, but they knew with all the free slaves now that their representation in Congress would be so much it would just outweigh the North if we're looking at all the people in the South to include the freed slaves, the millions of slaves down there. So what they did was okay. We'll make one, you know, three-fifth. Each person is three-fifth a person. So in all honesty, we'll cut your numbers a little, you know, a little over half, and therefore that's how you get your representation. So you're still not. We we can still pass our laws and measures, and you have representation here in Congress, but you're just not coming back in and then taken over. So it's a lot more to it. Um, Once again, that's why I encourage everyone, man, read, 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 read. Knowledge is out there. You just have to take the steps, open a book, find sources that are valuable and that are, you know, that are current, you know, do your research, know that these are uh, great sources to go to and just read. Knowledge is there. So yeah,
1: yeah, and and it's all about the people like with the there is people power and a lot of people feel hopeless and, and don't know where to start. But I, education, self education. I, I mean, you have to struggle. It, it is going to be a struggle. It's not going to be something that power never gives you anything unless you're actually struggling to take it, take it for yourself and for your community and for your country. So uh, I just encourage people uh, to stay optimistic, stay hopeful, read, learn and you know get get active work with folks who are who are uh doing things and uh you'll feel better about yourself you know the more you engage with uh your community and people who are who are really trying to be politically active and and change things the more the, the better you'll feel about um these times so all right well uh episode one down uh thank
5: you everyone for rocking with us and we're going to come out, you know, come back with, with much more. So be on the lookout I mean, especially tackling current events, things that we find
1: uh, necessary to talk about. So I'm Jerry. That's yeah, Evan. Yeah. Thanks. This is the power struggle. Yes, indeed. Take care, everyone. If you like what you hear, hit the like button, leave a review and subscribe to hear future episodes. You can follow the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag power struggle podcast. And you can find us at EmpathyMediaLab.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Patreon at Empathy Media Lab. Stay well, everyone, and educate yourself, organize, and mobilize to fight the power and create a brighter future.